right, so we're going to get started. I'm glad everybody's here tonight. We have a great big group. Uh, so we're jumping into uh, the mere Christianity, uh, Christian behavior. Uh, so we've been breaking it down. We started with just what's right and wrong, and then as we've progressed, we've gone to what Christians believe. Now we're at how does those how do those beliefs kind of affect our behavior in our day to day life. So this is a huge section in the book. It's like 80 pages. It's the biggest of the of the sections. Uh, so we're going to try to kind of move through it. And I'm going to be the blind, lean the blind here, and try to take a lot of this with just humility. And we can talk about any aspect that you want. I understand, like when I was in medical school, there's a couple times where I went to like a book type Bible study, and I hadn't read the book because I didn't have time. I think we can like we're talking about all Christian behavior. There's plenty of stuff that I think people can connect with, even if you haven't read it. So hopefully, like this will kind of stand on its own. But if it if I'm not making sense because I'm trying to quote him quite a bit, just stop me. And then I was trying to prepare for this, and I was kept, I was just telling Caitlin like. I don't know like what to say that's different from what he said that's going to be any better because he's thought about this way more and explains it so much better. So I'm going to pretty much be doing a lot of quoting of C.S. Lewis. And he's like, yeah, duh, that's what everyone says when they teach C.S. Lewis. And so I was like, yeah, that's true. That's what I'm going to be doing tonight. So there's a lot of like, just he's going to say a lot better than I can. So we're going to just throw it out there. All right. Uh, so kind of his format is like he takes a very complex idea makes it as simple as possible, builds it up with like analogies that make total sense, and then kind of wraps it up in this thing that anybody can understand. Uh, so that's how this book section's laid out. So we start with the basics of Christian behavior is just morals. Uh, then we talk about how that affects virtues, and then uh, move on to like your psyche and like psychoanalysis and your impulses, and then how it affects like big topics in Christian faith, like faith, hope, charity. And so that's kind of be the format that we're going to follow tonight. Uh, so jumping in with chapter one, it's about morality, and there's the three parts of morality. So he says there there are three parts of morality: harmony between individuals, aka like fair play. Uh, second part is harmonizing the things inside each individual, and the third part is the general purpose of human life as a whole. Uh, so in trying to explain this, C.S. Lewis gives like I think one of the best analogies from this book. It's the ship analogy. So kind of throughout this lesson, I'm going to be like harping on the analogies, but I think that's maybe what people will take with them and think when they think back to this lesson or this book in general. It's kind of like his little parables um, that I think wrap it up very well. So this one's the ship analogy. So if you think of like a fleet of ships, like with their big white sails and big wooden boats uh, that are all going together, maybe think of like Master and Commander or, I don't know, like Columbus and his Nina Pinta and Santa Maria that are all trying to come together to the Americas. Uh, there's the three parts of uh, morality are affecting those ships. So the first part are the ships in the fleet are all following rules so that they don't crash into each other. They're, they know like how fast to go, how um, like how far distance to stay from one another. Uh, the second part is that each ship needs to be seaworthy and all of its parts and its rudder and its sails need to be working, kind of like harmonizing the things inside of each individual needs to be occurring. And then the third part is that each of these ships needs to know the course and the destination because it doesn't matter if they are working and they're staying away from each other and keeping their space, but if they end up in the wrong spot, then it doesn't matter. Like if Columbus didn't end up in the Americas and he went the wrong direction, like it, his whole purpose wouldn't have been fulfilled. Uh, so he makes the point that uh, most of our culture is focused on only harmony between individuals, aka the first part of the analogy where we kind of like all just try to keep our space. Uh, we think that um, just like, I guess the saying in nowadays would be like, you do you, and like 
everybody kind of has their own as long as we like um, keep like kindness between classes and races and nations then that makes us good people um, but I think that there's like so much more than that and that's just like a very surface level but that's what our culture is held up as like the highest part of morality today and that's kind of recreate create this relative like moral relativity where nothing's right but as long as you stay in your lane then you're okay um, so if we try to move beyond that part and get to the second part of this analogy, like what's the point of selling the ship if there's a hole in the bottom of it? Or like what's the good of drawing up paper rules for social behavior if we know our greed, cowardice, anger, and self-conceit will keep us from following them? And so just because we have rules, like you cannot make men good men by law, and without good men you cannot have a good society. I was trying to think of how that would like apply uh, easily with like a modern day U.S. topic and like gun control was the first thing that came to mind. Um, not to get too political, we probably there's probably varying views in this room, but um, I think it's very agreed upon that the first part of like it, somebody like one person shot shoot the next, like mass shootings are terrible. We make all these laws to try to stop them with like what guns you can have, who can have guns. Um, then we started to recognize that there's a second part to it where we started to have mental awareness or mental health awareness where we've tried to kind of stop these problems before they're happening but these people that are carrying them out they still don't have like the right course they're not on the like what Christians would say is the right path and they've gone and perverted these things and it's led to just terrible tragedies um, so there's three parts of morality and we need to take care of all of them and where you set that third part it kind of depends on your beliefs and your core values so as Christians, we have um, kind of these beliefs that we're going to live forever and that we need to set our morals right because um, this person that we are as a whole is going to live forever and we're creating this being. Um, it's not just something that's going to last for 70 years or so. Uh, so the second part of that is, uh, the second chapter is the cardinal virtues. Uh, so classically, there are seven virtues, uh, which you should have some blanks here, are faith, hope, charity, fortitude, justice, prudence, and temperance. Uh, so these are divided into the theological, which are the first three, the faith, hope, and charity, which uh, were followed by Christians. And then the last four are the cardinal uh, virtues. Those are things that any like civilized people group or People, that's, or people of character would say that you need to follow. So the definitions he gives for these are uh, faith is the belief and trust in God. Hope is trust in God's promises. Charity is concern for and active helping of others. Uh, fortitude would be like brave endurance or just like grit would be another word that would come to mind for it. Uh, justice is fair fairness, honesty, give and take, truthfulness, promise keeping. Uh, prudence is not a word that we use a lot anymore, but uh, it would mean something like practical common sense and taking the time and trouble to think out what you're doing and what is likely to come of it. It's a very useful word. Uh, and then temperance is just that you moderate yourself. Uh, it doesn't have to be just alcoholic to be overdoing anything, like studying as a med student, watching Netflix, fantasy football. Um, all those things <laughs> make together are important virtues. I'm not picking on a cow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so the, the next analogy or parable that he throws in to try to tie all this together is uh, his tennis player analogy. Uh, so while you're trying to apply these virtues, uh, he tries to tie it into like a tennis player 
and he says someone who's a bad tennis player may now and then make a good shot. Uh, a good player's eyes and muscles and nerves have been so trained though that by making innumerable good shots that they can now be relied upon. They have a certain tone or quality which is uh, there even when he, he or she is not playing. In the same way a man who perseveres in doing just actions gets in the end a certain quality of character. The quality not the particular action is what we're after when we're talking about virtues. Um, so it's, it's become like just more of a habit. Like people that are virtuous don't have to think about being virtuous. It's just something that is part of them. And like every little decision makes you more of that character than uh, every time you make that decision makes you being more like that character and that virtue. Um, so in addition, if we are wrong, if we think that if by doing the right thing, it does not matter how and why you did it, then that and that doesn't build virtues. Um, even a bad tennis player can hit a very hard shot, not because it's needed, just because they get angry, and it, his shot might go into the court and be a good shot, um, but that doesn't make him a reliable player and doesn't make him a, like a virtuous person. All right, uh, so the next section of the book is uh, chapters three through six. It's social morality. Did I miss a blank there? I think I missed the blank. Okay. These are divided into the blank and blank virtues. Uh, theological and cardinal. Okay. So I, would say that I, I was going to say like yeah. this idea that you're talking about um, how uh, the goal is to, to work on the foundation of these virtues instead of like trying to be like more temperate or more charitable or you know it's like the same basic point of the seven habits of highly effective people which I've been lecturing on recently mm -hmm. reading and it's a great book if you've not read it and it's just the difference in what he calls the character ethic which is you know the body of you know like the bible would be about that, about the character ethic, you know, mm -hmm. um, that those are the fruits of the spirit or the fruits of the foundation of who you are as a person or your virtues rather than like a personality ethic, which is sort of like how a lot of people view like self-help or being a better person is you know, work harder at it or you know, work on this specific thing and here's what you should say or this is what you should do, really should be more about, you know, developing these virtues and anyway, just interesting yeah. to see it come back up in a different way. I think the example he gave of that is that, like, say somebody wants to be healthy, just like saying they want to be healthy or like trying to count calories or go after that certain thing doesn't make them healthy. But like, say like, play, like being outside where they're like not thinking about it or playing a sport will buy a second way of make, like, make them, them healthier, mm -hmm. um, just because it like becomes a part of who they are. Uh, so these next set chapters discuss how Christian behavior relates to politics, modern psychology, human sexuality, and the institution of marriage. Uh, so throughout this chapter on social morality, he kind of gives a description of what a Christian society would look like, and then just how that would relate into politics and uh, his modern day, which is 1940s, 50s, uh, United Kingdom. Uh, so many people approach scripture with hope of finding support from Christianity for the views for their own party, which is still very true today. But the goal of pu social public Christian life is not to force a Christian government. Um, but this doesn't mean that we can ignore what creates human flourishing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's Caitlin. Uh, 
Um, so within the society, we would be following the, the golden rule of like do as you would be done by. And he says that Christianity does not give us a detailed political program for applying that do as you would be done or the golden rule at a particular time and a particular society. Uh, it is meant for all men at all times, and the particular program, which should one place and time, would not suit another. So like when it tells you to feed the hungry, it doesn't give you lessons in cooking. And when it tells you to read the scriptures, it doesn't give you uh, lessons in Greek or Hebrew to help you do that. Uh, it's never intended to replace human arts uh, and sciences, but just a director to set them all right, to do the jobs, and to give new life to them. Uh, one area that scripture is very specific about is how to apply Christian, applying Christian principles and Christian morality is on the topic of giving to the poor, uh, she addresses. And so he asked the question of how much should we give? I think this is a hard question for some people in medical school. That like you have maybe hundreds of thousands of lo student loans and none of it's your money, but like how much do you like balance giving? Uh, his rule for this is that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Uh, so in other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements is like our classmates or this, the standard among those that make the same that we do, then we're probably given way too little. Um, if our charities don't put us in a bind or they're probably too small and if there's things that we want to do but we can't, then that's probably where, that we're in the right spot. Um, and then just our charity giving in general is um, usually not because like we're luxuriously living but we have a fear of insecurity and pride. So it's very true for a lot of us. Uh, so throughout this section, Lewis uh, uses the analogy of a pianist and a piano for our relationship with the soul and psychology. So this is another one of our analogies for tonight. Uh, so it, in this he talks about the psychoanalysis and then he was debated quite a bit with Sigmund Freud at the time and so he kind of talks about kind of this popular um, literature that he was publishing at the time and thoughts on impulses and um, I guess his take on all of it. Um, he, his analogy with the piano is that there are no such things as strictly good or bad impulses. It depends on the occasion. And I think of a piano. There are not good keys and bad keys on it. Every note is right at one time and wrong at another. And then the moral law is something in which makes a tune, a tune we call goodness, by directing those instincts. So, uh, both Christian morality and psychoanalysis claim to be techniques for putting the human machine right, but really they're not contradictory, kind of like we talked about with uh, science and Christianity not too long ago, but they just overlap and are looking at different things. Uh, he says that decisions are based on two things, both the act of choosing and the raw material of the choice, aka those impulses and uh, the things that are psychological self sense to us. Uh, psychoanalysis attempts to give the man, man better raw material for his acts of choice, while morality is concerned with the act of choice itself. Um, when humans try to judge what comes of that, we see each other by our external actions, by what one of us do, and what, um, how, we, how our actions live out um, externally. Uh, on the inside, God judges people by their moral choices. Um, example he gives when a neurotic, neurotic man who has a pathologic horror of cats forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason, Maybe that he is better in God's eyes than someone that has essentially won the Medal of Honor. Uh, it depends on what's like inside you and what your background is. 
Uh, so like when a man has been perverted since youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing, does some little, tiny little act of kindness or refrains from cruelty, uh, he may in God's eyes be doing more than you and I would if we gave up life itself for a friend. Uh, and on the other hand, some of us who seem quite nice people, in fact, may have done so little uh, good use of hereditary and upbringing that we're really worse than those who, who regard us as fiends. That's why we should not judge. Uh, God doesn't judge on the external actions that we see, uh, but on the raw material and what we've done with it. I think that's encouraging. There's some Christian life in general. Any thoughts on that? I was going to say, I think that piano thing is, is great because... We, we increasingly live in a culture that would say to kind of do what feels right or to mm-hmm. kind of follow your impulses and um, his point is that it, you know if there's a, a symphony that's been written for us that it allows us to, to make beautiful music and we're not choosing to read that you know then it's sort of like in a symphony you've got all these different musicians and they're all kind of trying to play the right notes and we're not it, it throws everything off um, and it's indulgent and I think that's kind of where we're at right now morally is mm-hmm. just kind of playing whatever we want to play yeah. a little bit um, and that that's fine because this is what feels right to me these are the notes that I should play and it's like sounds awful yeah um, you know which it's funny like that was a thing Freud was saying you know almost 100 years ago I guess at this point so it's kind of funny yeah. that uh, we're still fighting through those things yeah, I, uh, example he gives of that is um, like how sometimes patriotism and like fighting for your country uh, would be like just the instinct to fight would be a good note on the piano, like the good thing for most of the time. But at times, like fighting is bad, and like putting your country above God is a bad note. Um, so like the key itself for the quality impulse is not good or bad; it's how you apply it in a certain situation. general some people think that Christian morality is, is that just by keeping a lot of rules God rewards us um, and instead every time we make a choice you're just changing the central part of you that chooses something a little different from what it was before and when you add up all those choices throughout a life and those innumerable choices all your life long you're either turning yourself into a creature that is hellish or heavenly it's a summation of all those choices that you made out through your life working with that raw material or raw what you're giving that it looks different for every person Let's see, there's quite a few chapters in here, or a long section about sexual morality. I'll just kind of skip over some of that. Uh, but he gives a lot of examples of just on how uh, our culture in general has prepared sex when it was meant to be, and how that's per- permeated our culture. Um, a lot of comparisons he gives that have been quoted are about um, the, the ways that, uh, like how food 
um, greater food to sex. Like he says, what would kind of society would we be if we had shows where we slowly uncovered a tray of food while a crowd cheers? And kind of that's what we do with uh, sex and how far we've gone in perverting it. Like, what would you think of a cult? You think the culture is starving, but like our culture isn't starving from that re regard. When I was listening to that today, I thought Ryan would definitely be at that show. Yeah. Like that, though, right? We got like you know food TV and the cooking yeah. channel. And yeah. We obviously eat too much. Yeah. yeah. We're definitely not starving. We're not starving. Yeah. So maybe it's kind of similar. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, it's, it's kind of funny. We definitely do that with sex. Like it's like out of control. Yeah. Which that's one of the keys on piano. He talks about is like you know the desire for sex is like it's a good note, but yeah. Obviously, there's times where we agree it's not the right note to play. It's like yeah. We'll play it now right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then he transitions into a talk on marriage and um, kind of like the true love that. You find a marriage after you get past like the thrills part of it to like settle down into a quiet happiness. Uh, so the quote that's on your page is, "Being in love first moves them to promise fidelity, and this quieter love enables them to keep the promise." It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run, and being in love was the explosion that started it. Um, he emphasizes the lifelong nature of Christian marriage and the joining of as a single organism. It's not the modern view of a readjustment of partners that can be made whenever people feel they are no longer in love with one another, or one of them either falls in love with someone else. Uh, so to try to illustrate that, kind of moving past the thrills part, he gives a good analogy here. Um, that People sometimes get the idea that for movies that if you marry to that person, you, know, you go on just being in love and like that high all the time. Uh, when they find that they're not, they think that this proves that they made a mistake and they're entitled to a change. Um, but however, in most areas of life, the thrills come at the beginning and don't last. Um, so he gives an example of like a pilot who, on the first time he flies a plane, uh, feels like a certain thrill, or maybe the first time you like a roller coaster, you kind of feel that feeling in your gut, but it doesn't last. Um, like the first time you say you you see a beautiful place, but if you go there to live it, you kind of feel like figure out the bad parts of it, and like kind of you get used to it and accustomed to it. Um, but then once you live there for a while, you can are able to settle down and find like the true happiness and branch out and define new thrills in smaller, different ways that help you define the true happiness. So like in marriage and, and all those dating aspects, you should move past the thrill and move into that uh, second phase, which is sweeter and greater. And uh, if you're just going from thrill to thrill, then you're never going to be like satisfied and you're always going to be looking for like have an unfilled appetite. Um, in the next chapter, he talks about forgiveness. Uh, his quote here is, I'm not trying to tell you in this book what I could do. I can do precious little. I'm telling you what Christianity is. I did not invent it. And there, right in the middle of it, I find, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. There is no slightest suggestion that we are offered forgiveness on any other terms. Um, so he's writing this like right after World War II. And uh, as part of the series, he gets asked if you were a Jew or Pole, could he forgive the Gestapo? Um, and he, he goes to this quote of like, that it, we're told, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. And it's a hard thing to do. He doesn't say like if he could do it or not, but he's just trying to walk through this with humility because scripture's pretty intent on this area.
then in chapter 8 we get to the section on the great sin, uh, which is pride. And he says, well now we have come to the sinner, according to a Christian teacher, the essential vice, the most evil is pride. Uh, unchastely, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was, though pride that th it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice, is the complete anti-God state of mind. That's a pretty strong quote. Uh, pride is so destructive to Christian living for two reasons. It prevents the humility required for Christian repentance and spirit-filled living, and it leads to all the other sins. So, everybody's there. There's three prides, humility and sins. Um, as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. Uh, how can people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride uh, say that they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I'm afraid it means that they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God. But are they really all the time imagining how he proves of them and think them far better than ordinary people? Like the story of the man at the end of the world who was told that God had never known them. Uh, any of us may fall into this trap. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small and dirty object. We had a mm. series at Highland. It's been maybe a year now on the seven day deadly sins. And if you've seen, seen like the movie Seven or you're familiar with those, Pride is one of those. Mm -hmm. But uh, originally, as it was outlined, uh, there were eight things. One of them was vainglory, and Pride was actually the trunk. And so it wasn't like a branch of the tree. It was like the source of all those deadly sins, which is interesting. Um, and I, I really do think that's true. This this like concept is since maybe two years ago, like really reading this, studying this, it comes back and comes back. And you see it in the scripture. It's funny, like when you make that connection, you're like, oh yeah, that is that is pretty true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so the reason why we do like all bad things is we feel like we deserve it or it's okay for us, but not for someone else. And it's just weird how that mm -hmm. all works. It is true. And it's what Satan like was appealing to, and, and with with Jesus was that trying to appeal to to pride or kind of the position that he was in, which is interesting. It's ultimately what keeps you from acknowledging that you need a savior to you, you know. And I think that that's like the most important thing is recognizing that, and and I think so often our pride gets in the way of that, and it goes back to like being able to forgive people. I mean, mm -hmm. that is the same thing. Like, if you can't, if you can't forgive someone, it's because you somehow think that they've, you know, done you wrong in a way that you would never do or whatever. It's, it's pride. And, and yet, all of us need forgiveness, you know. So. Any other thoughts? Uh, in chapter 9, the topic is charity. Uh, but love, in the Christian sense, does not mean an emotion. It's a state not of the feelings, but of the will. It's a state of the will which we will have naturally about ourselves and must learn to have about other people. Ask yourselves, if I were sure that I love God, what would I do? When you have found the answer, go and do it. I think that's some very, very practical advice. Uh, so it's like, don't even bother whether worrying about whether you love your neighbor or not. Just like act as if you did, and then the more you act like it, the more likely you are to actually just love them. Um, I think it'd be great if we could apply that. 
Uh, chapter 10 is on hope. Uh, the quote here is, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth, precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Uh, so there's been several ways that humans have tried, or kind of try about constantly going, trying to attain otherworldly happiness. He gives uh, three examples. There's the fool's way, uh, the, di the way of the disillusioned sensible man, and then the Christian way. So the fool's way is that we just, he just puts the blame on things themselves, thinks that like if we only tried something different, if we went on a better vacation, uh, if we had like more time off work, then we like, kind of finally catch that mysterious thing that we're after and find that happiness. So a lot of times this person just like jumps from hobby to hobby and... Um, I just are always bored, discontented. I think people in like doctors, dentists, like probably have seen that example played out in life quite a bit. Um, the other way people go is probably that we've seen a lot, just in people that we're in a day-to-day -day life with, is they decide that the whole thing's just kind of like not worth trying to go for it. They realize that there's, they think that they're never going to get it, so they might as well just settle down, not expect too much, just kind of be comfortable in their life. Uh, watch football, like just kind of like not try too hard at anything. And they live okay, but they kind of just miss the whole point of like going for something greater that they could achieve if they wanted it. And then there's the Christian way, uh, which is uh, when we see that there's no desire, uh, there's we, find, we know that we have a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that the, we weren't made for this world or made for another. And we can enjoy earthly pleasures, but they're just like showing us the true real experience that is waiting for us beyond that. And we shouldn't mistake them for the real thing. Uh, we just should use our life to press on towards that other country where those things are real. Uh, <laughs> when we're talking about hope, he uh, kind of gave an interesting segment that he says when people talk about heaven, they think, oh, they're just going to be playing harps all the time or listening to music and they think that I don't necessarily want to do that it doesn't sound that great to me he says like those people are children I was like oh man I thought that before like man um, but he just says that we're totally missing the point and that's all about the imagery and that's just the best words that we he could uh, use to illustrate like bigger themes so like with the use of musical instruments in the scripture that those are mentioned to suggest that uh, to most people, music is thing uh, most known in the present life, which strongly suggests ecstasy and infinity. Um, crowns show we are united with God to share his eternal splendor and power. And gold is mentioned to suggest the timelessness of heaven and the preciousness of it. Gold does not rust. Uh, so if we take these symbols literally, uh, we might as well think that, uh, like when we're told that we should be like doves, he didn't mean that we were... I meant to lay eggs, so I kind of ruined that. But you can't say everything very literally. <coughs> That'd be kind of cool to play a harp if you're really good at it. You know? Yeah. Okay.
Yeah, I don't think uh, any of the imagery of heaven is supposed to be like literal. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. <coughs> Does John even like say, like I feel like in Revelation when he talks about those things, I don't, I don't know if he even like intends to take that literally, like streets of gold or like there's gems and all. That. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't think it's his way of kind of describing it. I think that's what he's trying to say. But. I think we do take it literally and like I had it. Oh yeah, I missed all my image when I think of heaven. <laughs> level off Mario where you're in the clouds or something. Uh-huh. Like like a, which is always the best level because there's all that gold up there. So it's probably where they got the idea to do that. <laughs> all right. uh, so the last just two chapters on faith, kind of going to breeze through them because in like four weeks I think I'll teach all what is faith. one to help you fill out your blanks is Christianity seems at first to be all about morality all about duties and roles and guilt and virtue yet it leads you on out of all that into something beyond one has a glimpse of a country where they do not talk about those things except perhaps as a joke everyone there is filled full with what we should call goodness as a mirror is filled with light but they do not call it goodness they do not call it anything they're not thinking of it they're too busy looking at the source from which it comes this is near the stage where the road passes over the rim of our world no one's eyes can see very far beyond that. All right. All right so to, to wrap it all up, uh, this last quote is from uh, the book of Narnia as, it, as he's concluding it, and it gives a good life, good imagery of what the Christian life is like. Um, it's at the lamppost. So it's here at the lamppost, the boundary between this world and the next. Where Christian behavior shines the brightest, the Christian life is not something that shines for its own sake or by its own power, but is merely a flicker of the truth that faithfully, hopefully, and charitably shines the way home, where the Father of all lights will shine forever.